Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host Dr. Wasim Akhtar. Today I'm joined by Professor Orit Halpern, Chair of Digital Cultures and Societal Change at Technical University Dresden. She completed her PhD at Harvard. At present she is working on two projects. The first is a history of automation, intelligence and freedom. The second project examines extreme infrastructures and the history of experimentation at planetary scales in design, science and engineering. She is co-author of a recent book, The Smartness Mandate. In this episode of Bridging the Gaps, we are going to discuss this book. Orit, thank you very much for joining me and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you Vasim for the invitation. I really welcome it. how would you define the concept of smartness as it is discussed in your book and how does it differ from traditional notions and understanding of uh, expertise or intelligence that's a great question so in english you know smart is a weird word and uh you know um i if some if a bee stings me it smarts like oh that hurts uh i can also look smart i can also be smart as in intelligent so it's kind of a multi uh varied word and the interesting thing is when it comes to computing and to the way uh people have been marketing smartness whether it's in corporations or governments it also takes a kind of multivalent capacity smart above all in our uh, sort of book is about and but not just in our book i think in the real world actually smartness is about the ability to learn it's about large groups of people or even non-human uh entities such as machines but also possibly animals being having their data collected having their decisions and their actions their behavior agglomerated in order to make decisions so above all smartness for us is about learning it's about systems that think that they're collecting data and feeding data back to themselves they can the, the system can actually evolve or learn and that's the fundamental idea behind smartness is something that is adaptive and in many ways smartness is as much linked as i mentioned between oh it hurts me and oh i look nice or i'm smart it's as much linked to the biological which is to say ideas of adaptation evolution change as it is to the computational ideas of things that can be automated algorithmically defined calculated And so what makes it smartness interesting is it links our bodies the biological being into the computational the calculative the algorithmic and the predictive or the ca- you know calculating um possibilities or futures. And so for us that's what smartness is it's about the thing that links the biological to the computational through this figure of of learning really about systems that can adapt by uh recording their data and learning from it. Okay, this is the understanding and description of smartness that you follow in this book. Give us few examples of how the smartness paradigm has been implemented in different domains. Some 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 tangible examples for our listeners. 
Well, obviously, you live in a world of smart stuff, right? Like every time you use your phone, it's smart. Uh, if we talk about ChatGPT4, it's smart. Uh, so you live in a world of systems that gather data to improve supposedly uh, some sort of service or function to you. So every time, for example, you use a translation service like Google Translate or DeepL or whichever system, it's smart. What does that mean? It means that it's learning from its users how to better translate the language. Uh, every Actually, many cities, I don't know that much about Ireland, I must say, but uh, most cities, for example, if you drive your car, for starters, you're already using a GPS or GIS system, a geographical information system to guide you. That's smart. What does that mean? It takes a lot of data. It learns from everybody. It gets data from the companies and from the cert, you know, from everything in the environment. It gets data from the city, and it learns how to send you down the fastest street. Uh, that you can get. It takes data from other users, for example, and if they're standing in traffic because their phone isn't moving, it tells you avoid that road, there's a traffic jam. So every time you're using your Google Maps to get somewhere and it says there's a traffic jam here, you're using a smart system basically that is agglomerating data and using other users to tell you oh, their, their phones aren't moving, they're not moving, that means there's a traffic jam over there. Um, every time, uh, again, I mentioned translation, but also medical systems, for example, are very potent places where we use smart systems all the time. So, for example, uh, increasingly people are using artificial intelligence or smart systems to read... Um, scans, whether they're of uh, cancer tumors or other systems, to try to figure out uh, that this anomaly indicates that something is wrong. And those are also smart systems. Again, anytime you're using a system that collects data and changes its behavior according to that data, you're basically in a smart system. Um, the weather forecast, I, I could keep going, but all of us are pretty familiar with systems that pretty much change our behavior according to the information they're giving us, right? Like if I see there's a traffic jam or if I see it's going to rain outside, I might change what I'm going to do today. So these smart systems that you have just outlined, they seem very useful tools. They seem very good tools and technologies. However, in the book and in your research and presentations, you talk about potential risks and implications. So let us move on and try to understand what are the potential risks and implications of this data-driven approach that we are using uh, to develop these uh, smart systems. Sure. It's um, not to be corny or cheesy. It's like the force in Star Wars, you know, it like has the good side and the bad side. So, uh, you know, just like, the, you know, the Jedi, there's good and bad ones. There's Darth Vader and then there's Luke Skywalker. Uh, so, yeah, there's lots of great things we do with data. And I don't want to dismiss those things because part of our book is about trying to understand what would it mean to have a good computing, right? Like, what would it mean to have good data systems? What would it mean to have 
to use our technology for more uh, just, equitable worlds. But of course, there's also the dark side of the force. And the dark side of the force is largely around surveillance, racism, sexism, xenophobia. So obviously, the minute you're collecting data and monitoring everywhere people go, so that same nice GIS system that helps you Find the supermarket is the same GIS system that could allow an authoritarian government to track you for human rights activists and arrest you. It's the same system that if you're an immigrant or um, a refugee trying to flee across a border will allow someone to stop you because they can track your phone and see exactly where you are. Uh, it's the same system that would allow someone to monitor and block you and it's also the these systems are also not systems that are engaged uh, with questions that bother us a lot in science of course which are about truth so i can gather data but i don't know if it's true or false so uh I, if someone falsifies the data and and submits a bad data set like it's not very clear that i can automatically monitor that and obviously and the number one concern we have with things like GPT-4 and with large uh, data-driven systems is like, how do you know if the information that the machine is learning from is true or false, right? Um, uh, there's this question of statistical parroting that machines learn from whatever we put in the system, but the data is only as good as, as whatever we in introduce into it. And human beings are of course not objective subjective and there's also plenty of people in the world who are interested in manipulating information. So obviously, uh, whether it's um, false data or fake memes being circulated or, uh, you know, kind of propagandistic, racist, sexist or xenophobic material being circulated on the net that then just gets picked up by say a translation program or a large language learning um, model for AI. There's no way, right, to regulate whether we're actually telling the truth or creating, um, you know, there's, that's not, these systems are not invested in questions of objectivity, replicatability, um, verification or any of the other issues that might occupy us, let's say in science and other scientific disciplines, or frankly, that might be of concern if you're trying to really make a decision, you know, um, or even as a politician or uh, generally a person in the public, you don't know where you're getting your information from. So those are the downsides of big data infrastructures and smart systems is that they, they're smart, but they're not necessarily reasonable or conscious or intelligent or creative. And there is a difference. So it means that these risks that you have just outlined, they can be divided into two different categories. First category is that if you are using bad data, if you have data that has some sort of bias, so it will lead to decisions and it will lead to outcomes uh, that will be based on those biases. So that's one risk. The other risk, uh, as you mentioned, surveillance, for instance, that these tools can be used for a purpose 
for which they are not actually designed. So they can tell you that what is the best route from point A to point B, but at the same time, this information can be used for surveillance. So, but surveillance is an intentional act of using the system for a purpose for which it is not designed. So these, this is second category. So which one is more serious? Wrong data that leads to wrong decision making or people intentionally using these smart systems to do something different? I think the bigger problem is that two aren't that separate. Our big questions, right, are that there's a lot of history to these systems. And maybe they could have been developed differently under different conditions. But under the conditions we've lived, most of these systems have been developed either by large corporations or, or particular governmental entities. And in those cases, they've either been developed for the market, at which point they have been very interested in serving you, but to get you to buy things. Um, so they've been quite invested in tracking. And very often, for example, uh, certain companies like Intel or IBM, you know, went and, and worked, you know, they worked, they wanted a Chinese market. They got particular, uh, you know, they, they bought, bought acquisitions there. And then they ended up servicing uh, the Chinese government, for example. And I'm not just blaming China, so I don't want to be like xenophobic or anything. Obviously, the same thing has happened with is Israeli security companies have obviously had a, a terrible track record uh, with uh, human rights and have sold technologies like Pegasus and so forth to many governments. Um, they're private contractors whose main concern has been, you know, figuring out ways to get data and you could use it to sell things to people. You can sell, you can sell Nike sneakers, you can do whatever, or you could, you know, you can also track human rights activists. So uh, it goes either way. And so I think the main issue has been that mostly the technology has been developed either around the free market which has also not created an ethical or moral obligation to, you know, worry about where the technology is being used or who's using it. Or there's been a lot of investment by, you know, obviously by countries like China and others that are autocratic to really develop these surveillance infrastructures around ensuring that their citizens comply with their order. Um, either way, it's not necessarily better. So I'm not necessarily sure that the technology is not being used for what it was intended. Uh, now that said, I think that there's also places where the technology could be used beneficially. And that's been shown again and again. So, you know, whether it's Black Lives Matter or, uh, you know, Chilean anti-austerity um, protests or, Generally, people organize through social networks and using these technologies. So it's very clear that the technology isn't one directional and that we can modify it and use it in different ways. But I would also stress that, you know, it's very important to, to think pretty heavily about uh, the ethical, moral, and structures that are producing the technologies because the big concern, for example, today with things like ChatGPT for 
For me, isn't that ChatGPT4 will replace humans? It's about who owns the data sets that can train the AIs, who chooses to let them be open or closed, and when they'll choose to stop it. So right now, a lot of people develop all their models off of meta AI or open AI, but those are private entities that at any moment could could close that access, right? And in general, maintaining the infrastructure for a lot of this AI, like just the number of servers and computers it takes to actually do the processing to run any of these models, there's like three organizations on earth that can pay for that. And so we need to start understanding artificial intelligence and information as a as a commons, as something that we actually need to somehow Think about how we're going to create also public infrastructures that are democratic and diverse, because right now everything is owned by either particular governmental entities or mostly corporate entities, and and that means that we're at there. It's only to the but we need to ask for whom and who owns it, and what are the actual structures by which we're producing knowledge. An important point that you make in the book is that the smartness paradigm tends to reinforce existing power structures and inequalities. Now, you have briefly touched upon this point as you were answering previous questions, but I just want to dig deep on this, that smartness paradigm tends to reinforce existing power structures and inequalities. Well, like I said, actually... um our hope is that it will actually undermine existing powers and inequalities. But for me, that means, and I guess that's your job as an engineering professor, we have to get more people in engineering and technology interested in history, sociology, anthropology, invested in trying to understand how what they build has social implications. Because I do think that there are radical ways that these systems like there's something great about people having to network with each other and that we can learn collectively. I think that's something that could be progressive. However, under the current history and uh, conditions under which these technologies have developed, um, mostly in our case, there's a really particular history and it comes at two scales. So on one hand, these technologies were developed at, at the kind of global scale around the Cold War and the question of, on one hand, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there was this issue that we could destroy ourselves as a species through our technology. And that imaginary was quite potent. It's created an imagination of the future as potentially catastrophic. And in the 70s, that metamorphosized into the environmental movement through the, a famous report called Limits to Growth that was the first computer-simulated kind of future of the planet. And it demonstrated that no matter what humanity did, we're basically headed for a very bad ending if we kept going the way we were. Now, there's some good things about this catastrophe, but there's some bad things, which is every time you operate under the discussion of crisis, anything you do is, is good. Like you're allowed to sacrifice other people. You're allowed to create wars. We can go to war if we need that energy source. We can do whatever. It doesn't matter. It's about survival. 
And so the Cold War kind of inaugurated this kind of survivalist, also species extinction problem. Then at a more local scale, so there's different scales this is happening. And then within sciences, there was, and again, it can be good and bad, it was the rise of this idea that the world is comprised of information, that we should start thinking economy, psychology, machines in terms of information instead of in terms like in like earlier in terms of energy or other ideas in physics. There's all sorts of ideas societies have had, but after World War II, it was really about this idea of communication. And particularly and and particularly in the sciences of psychology and computer science, this took hold. And it changed your model of what human beings were. And there is a relationship between these two scales, which is mainly that the idea of the human being started to be one of, um, of fallibility, that human beings didn't have all the information in the world. They couldn't make reasonable decisions. In fact, unlike the, um, for example, enlightened 19th century, 18th century white male who can make the perfect decision. The idea after World War II was like, look at all these wars we've had. Look at these genocides. Look at these atomic bombs. Human beings are pretty bad decision makers, actually. Maybe we're not very reasonable. And people started, and that might have been, a, and that's a legitimate critique, right? Human beings don't seem very reasonable. And they were like, well, maybe we actually need machines to make better decisions. Maybe we need a different idea about rationality. And so starting in economics with figures like Friedrich Hayek, I don't know how many of your uh, listeners would know who that is, but he's a famous uh, economist. He was an Austrian economist who was a uh, critical of both fascism and communism, actually initially a friends with people like Maynard Keynes, um, but then fell off of it, was like, you know, societies don't run so well on this model of um, the idea that people are perfect decision makers, or the idea that there's good government or policy makers, that that government can plan ahead. He's like, actually, people are deeply fallible. They're actually don't have all the information they need. The world is too complicated for them to understand. And actually, they only work very well when they network together in um, something like a market. That markets make decisions that individuals can't. And they actually, we only make good decisions when we're networked together. And he was very influenced by a bunch of psychologists primarily individuals like Donald Hebb, who came up with an idea of the neural network. Now, you probably have heard of the neural network. Obviously, it's a very uh, popular idea today. And actually, weirdly enough, the idea came from a psychologist working in the 1940s who actually was working with um, uh, soldiers and other people who had been injured in the war and who were disabled. And he realized that the brain compensated, it changed. So if you didn't, if you lost a leg or if you lost a limb or if you were blind or if you were deaf, that other senses started to compensate, that it seemed like brains were reprogrammable. 
And he came up with this idea that uh, that we is very famous now that cells that fire, you know, that um, that neurons basically that fire together, wire together, and that's a weird statement. You're like, what does that mean? Fire and wire. What he said is that you know, I don't. I don't remember everything I see. I don't remember every single face I've ever seen. What I remember is a certain set of stimuli. And every time I see a human face, a certain set of neurons go off together. So, for example, we don't tell babies what cats are. But a baby sees a cat, a baby keeps seeing a cat, and slowly over time, a certain set of neurons in the baby's head start firing together. They're statistically more probable to fire together when they see something with a certain set of stimuli that uh, looks that's cat-like. So we never have to explain what a cat is, but slowly the more cats a baby sees, eventually the cat understands baby, uh, no, the baby understands a cat, and the the neurons uh, fire together. And if that sounds familiar, that is because machines also learn that way, right? They see a lot of cats and they eventually understand what a cat is, not because they know what a cat means or have an ontological definition of cat, but because a certain set of stimuli have been given and then that statistically conditions a series of neurons to fire together. Now, interestingly enough, that came out of psychology. And interestingly enough, this economist, who you wouldn't think there'd be any relationship to psychology, thought that was a great idea. He's like, wow, that idea of a brain that's networked into the environment and doesn't learn through a central kind of preconditioned, planned way, just learns by getting fed information and processing it. That's just like what markets do. Individuals, that, so that was the, the kind of brain that fits the kind of market that uh, Hayek and what we call neoliberals imagined. And then, interestingly enough, in 1956, there's a conference in uh, Dartmouth College, and it's a conference where they invent a term called artificial intelligence. And there's one particular person there. Um, his name is Rosenblatt, and he invents something called a perceptron. Uh, you may have heard of perceptron. Maybe many of your viewers are familiar with this, but it's kind of the first working kind of um, neural network. There were other models of neural nets, but this was the first kind of networked mode. And he's inspired by these economists and these psychologists to say, oh, you know what? Now, his question wasn't ours. He actually didn't know what a machine was. I know it sounds crazy not to know what a machine is or not to know what a brain is, but he wanted to use this model to try to understand more about how humans think. He's like, it's not... It's not a model of how we think. It's just something that could test us to think, what if neurons acted like this? What if brains learned like this? But interestingly enough, he developed this model and it ended up working, not in its moment. It actually took another you know, 40 years until Jeffrey Hinton developed an idea of black back propagation and there was bigger data sets, but nonetheless, it all combined. Now, many of you may be wondering, why am I telling you this elaborate story about how psychology, economics, computer science, unified, 
in the Cold War, but it's basically fundamental to what smartness is. Because fundamentally, smartness is about both understanding the world as being existentially at threat, like the world is always about to end, and understanding technology as being central to avoiding that threat, but fundamentally also understanding that human beings are not good decision makers. So the central point of smartness is that we don't, we've abandoned the idea that we can plan or that we can, you know, that, that uh, government should organize the future, that, you know, policymakers should do things. And a fundamental belief that only humans linked to machines can make better decisions through network decision making, whether and mostly through markets. Uh, but also now through artificial intelligence. And that for us is a fundamental feature to smartness, but it's also why smartness becomes so unequal. Because the ultimate kind of falseness or, or the ultimate, I guess, ideology behind smartness is that even though we say this for most people, the fact is we still think they're geniuses and ultimately smartness is not fair. We act as though we would all join a market and each of us would be equal, but we're not. We, we don't have the same amount of money. And we act as though each of us could, could build um, a large language learning model, but we can't actually, and we can't command those infrastructures. And so what the idea of human fallibility and the merger between economics and an idea of the of the human as fallible has created is fundamentally an economic model that one dominates the idea that we have to be smart, we have to do this in order to increase efficiency, be effective, uh, make more money, um, and also be a successful society, but also has created an issue around the fact that we don't have a discussion anymore around who we're building the technology for, why it's always been kind of, it's always been put to the kind of question of individual fallibility in terms of decision-making, an imagination that collectivities are virtuous and that there are and uh, and kind of a focus on the technology instead of questions of society and history. So I don't know if that was a little bit of a confusing history and I can repeat it, but basically the combination between questions of threat and questions of fallible human decision making has both allowed us to uh, sort of decide we don't like, you know, socialized systems of governmental assistance while simultaneously always saying that technology is going to step in and help humanity without actually asking who owns the technology, for whom is this working, and to for whom does this sort of discussion and idea that we all of, of collective decision making through markets support. Thank you very much for this uh, detailed description. 
we will come back to the point that how we can start an informed discourse or how we can develop procedures or processes that can enable us to deal with this challenge, the negative side of uh, this uh, smartness that we are discussing here. But I just want to touch upon one or two more points before we discuss that. In the book, you discuss the relationship between the smartness paradigm and the concept of resilience. Uh, I'm keen to understand this connection. Talk us through the potential benefits and drawbacks of emphasizing resilience in governance and design processes. Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll just back up. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, smartness kind of has a history in things like cybernetics, the history of computing. I, I don't know how much uh, the the listeners know about these sciences, but these are the sciences of communication and control that developed after World War II. And obviously they developed in relationship to the emergency of World War II, mostly by British and Americans kind of fighting uh, this war against the Germans, but also, uh, and also the Japanese. Uh, so there was a, there was a kind of a emergency situation that, you know, kind of unfolded computing. But afterwards, like I mentioned, a lot of computing was developed for the development of the atomic bomb. And naturally, the actual set-off of the atomic bomb inaugurated a new question. What does it mean for humanity to destroy itself through its own technology? I mean, uh, we weren't talking just about killing off one group. This isn't just one genocide. It's literally species genocide through our own technology. And this obviously created a lot of anxiety, uh, and especially around like any normal human being would be a little concerned. Along with that came, uh, you know, so the Cold War sort of inaugurated this idea that we might be threatening our own existence with technology. And coming in the 1970s, as I mentioned, and particularly through a very famous report titled The Limits to Growth, a series of scientists modeled um, the planet systems, not necessarily fully or truly. And there were many, many issues with this report, and it had a lot of questions involved, particularly around whether human beings can change or learn, and also about the treatment of the global South as sort of a, a kind of problematic side of this. But essentially they, they decided or they showed, they demonstrated that if we continue to pollute the planet and if we continue industrial production the way we were, according to their simulations, uh, we would basically like society would collapse. It created a very negative crisis for future. And so a lot of people started saying, you know, we got to figure out how to solve this problem of how we're going to survive. And I would say that today in the midst of a climate crisis, this is particular pressing, right? But a few ecologists said, you know, one of the problems with these models and one of the problems with these cybernetic systems and even the problem with how we're modeling Cold War systems is that we've got two powers and we're assuming that the normal state of, of systems is what we call homeostasis, that systems always return back to some sort of normal state. 
But a series of ecologists looked and they they looked at what happened to environments after they get disrupted. So in this particular case, they were looking, for example, um, it was a particular uh, ecologist, C.S. Holling, who was an environmental um, uh, scientist from Canada, was looking at cod fishing in Newfoundland. And they found out that even if you stopped cod fishing, the cod didn't just come back. And even and then they looked at budworms. That's some little worm, like some little insect that attacks pine tree. I don't remember which tree, but uh, boreal forests in Canada. And it turns out that these things change according to temperature, and temperatures are obviously changing due to human action. And it 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 didn't matter uh, what you did. Once they attack, like you could cut all the trees with the budworms and you could replant the trees, the system didn't come back the same as it was. And the same thing happened with forestry. You could cut down all the trees, you could replant, but it didn't, it didn't quite work. And they started to be like, maybe our model is wrong. Maybe the world isn't always in about uh, returning to the past Maybe systems are always evolving and adapting and changing. And so then they came up with a new idea that instead of sustainability, which is like, let's just keep things going the way they were, maybe we need something called resilience, which is how do we keep systems working and manage, and for ecosystems, that's something we call ecosystem services. How do they how do they deliver on particular functions? So boreal forest is about boreal trees. How do they keep growing? How do we keep growing trees even though there's lots of changes? And how do we do that without assuming that the system doesn't change? And so this became a critical idea. And now that might seem very distant from computing. And so everyone started saying, okay, what we need is resilience. And for them, resilience meant we need biodiverse systems that can take shocks, a flood, a fire, an insect infestation, whatever attacks a forest, let's say. And at the end of the day, somehow, because there's enough types of trees, if all the pine trees get killed by the budworms, there'll still be birch trees. There'll be a different tree, okay? And that's a resilient forest. And that idea took hold not just in forestry and in cod fishing, but also in things like supply chain management. So, for example, we've just had a COVID uh, crisis, and now we have a geopolitical crisis. And suddenly everyone's like, how do we get silicon chips? And the issue is we don't have resilient supply chains. We put all the silicon chips out in China or Taiwan, and now we have a problem getting them, right? Why? And now suddenly people are like, wait, we need silicon chips made all over the place so that if an attack or a problem happens in one place in the system, we can respond. And that's a fundamental idea in smartness is that it learns that systems can learn from the information and that they can adapt, and that they can be flexible. So for us, resilience is really important to smartness because it's fundamental to how we think about designing 
logistical systems, supply chains, cities, like fundamentally right now, we kind of build things anticipating a crisis. Like right now we're preparing New York City, maybe, you know, wherever for, you know, sea level rise. And you're actually assuming you're going to have sea level rise. You don't assume you're going to stop it. You assume it's going to come and you're going to start preparing for it. And that means you have to start figuring out that if I lose my energy or electrical grid in one place, I'm going to have another place that's going to fill it. And ideally, we start today, we think about that happening through computational management. And this happens all the time, whether it's Amazon, you know, uh, distribution centers and procurement centers. We have like tons of Kiva or where it's about reorganizing how we produce things and remake them. The hope is that through using increased data and informatics and artificial intelligence, we can make our supply chains, logistical systems, urban habitats, more flexible, more plastic, and more capable of responding to crisis. Now, the problem with resilience versus, say, sustainability is that it assumes that crisis is actually normal. So a lot of environmentalists, for example, are really upset about smart cities because they're like, look, you keep thinking about all these smart ways that we can get around climate change. So we're going to you know, monitor the systems. We're going to try to reduce energy through how, tagging all our trash and recycling perfectly and having rainwater capture and having, a, you know, blockchain organized autonomous grids with solar panels and et cetera. But the one thing we're not going to do is stop consuming energy, right? And they're saying, look, you really should be stopped consuming energy, not finding all these smart solutions to supposedly reduce your carbon footprint. And so resilience doesn't ever say we're going to actually stop the crisis. Resilience is like, we don't say we're going to stop the climate crisis anymore. We say we're going to prepare for it. And that's the problem with resilience is it accepts crisis and catastrophe as standard conditions that we prepare for and design for. How can we start a more informed public discourse and develop a critical understanding of the smartness paradigm to ensure that uh, its implementation aligns with the fair societal values? That's a great question. I think that's why we're having this conversation. Um, Mostly, I think it's really important for people in engineering and design fields and maybe people in the humanities to engage with the engineering and design fields. Like, we have to talk to each other. And we fundamentally have to ask about our basic assumptions about how we model the world, how we use technology, and how we, and we also have to change our questions about technology. Like, one of the issues is that we always think we know the answers, but ultimately we need to find new questions because to deal with the kind of structural problems and inequities and in big data infrastructures means we have to rethink who's invested, what's happening, what the history is, what the sociological context. We have to kind of think about technology 
contextually, but we also have to understand that we put our biases, our ideas as a society, our preferences, our morals, our ethics into technologies. So I think it's really about um, thinking about diversity, like thinking about different possible systems, thinking about different publics, thinking about creating diverse types of public data sets. And I also think it's about what a lot of people call digital fluency. We need to not just think, we need to think about different forms of reading, writing, and thinking in data, in technology. And that means a conversation between the disciplines to understand the complexity of the systems we're building. You mentioned uh, multidisciplinarity, that different disciplines talk to each other and walk together. And then there is a role in there for educational institutions and there is a role in there for educators that they promote this discourse. They create enabling conditions for this multidisciplinarity. Yeah, actually, you know, the funny thing we forget when we say the word artificial intelligence is we forget that it's really about machine learning and the key word is learning. And ultimately, learning is a human and technological endeavor, but it's also one that we have a lot of place to try to rethink and to um, interrogate and also to intervene in. I think there's nothing more important now, actually, than learning and education when it comes to the future of computing. Because fundamentally, we need to become literate in new ways. And I think that also there's a huge war on learning. I think that fundamentally, um, the interest, particularly in conservative and reactionary politics, is about making sure no one knows how to create their own data set or think their own model or do anything outside of what's already existing. And fundamentally, um, whether we want machines to learn in new ways or whether we want human beings to relate to each other and to other, uh, maybe even other species in new ways, is fundamentally a pedagogical project. Um, and it's really critical to remember that. It's also really important to remember that education has been central to the imagination of diverse uh, democratic societies since the end of the 18th century. It's been really important to ensure that people know how to read and write, but what it means to read, write, learn, study the world, gather data, that has changed over time. And so it's really vital that we as educators actually remain pretty central. We're really the central forces. We train the engineers, we train the people. Ultimately, there's no such thing as an AI that replaces a human being. They're always programmed and made by people. It's just a fact. And ultimately, they service people. They certain service people, certain people more than others. So it was a question for whom and how and for what. But those questions are questions that we ask when we get educated. And that's why education is so critical. If we want new models of machine learning or human learning, we need to develop them at every level of the educational system. And that's why I think it's so important to have these conversations. 
What is your take on this view that is emerging that the research and development in the field of artificial intelligence should be regulated and there should be monitoring of this research and development? I mean, I think that's context develop uh, context specific. Of course, there should and will be regulation as there is with everything. I mean, I'm accredited as a PhD and there are in you know, there's governmental bodies that confirmed Harvard as a university and confirmed that this PhD is normal or decent or whatever or up to standard uh, of a particular nation state. Uh, there are regulations on the financial market. There are regulations in general. Human beings also operate within laws if we're not going to be fascistic or autocratic. You know, there has to be certain protocols or standards that we arrive at um, and preferably through democratic and democratic political means. So I don't think there's a question that we regulate all technologies. Uh, I think that the broader question when people say, oh, we want to stop AI or that's a different question. Uh, I think that's a, a problematic discussion. And like I said, for me, the main issue and even the regulatory issue is what are we going to regulate and how do we understand this technology? And for me, the biggest lie about GPT-4 and all these things has been the kind of extreme focus on like, oh, my gosh, the AI is going to replace human beings and blah, 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 and which has shifted the conversation away from not so much like will AI replace, but who is this AI serving? Who owns the data sets that it's being trained on? Who gets to build these models? And what types of models are we building? What's our understanding, for example, of language that we're selling here? Is it language as a service that I can just kind of, you know, that it's supposed to be something? Or is it language as an innovate? I don't know. These are questions that we have to decide politically. There's no wrong or right answer, but they do need to be open for discussion. And fundamentally, the biggest concern is that all these discussions about AI, replacing individuals, creating all this stuff, hides the bigger problem of AI as being, you know, fundamentally oligarchical in its infrastructure and that very few people control the means and the infrastructure. I mean, just the raw amount of computing power costs a lot of money. Uh, and someone needs to maintain it. And, you know, it's really nice that MetaAI or whoever or OpenAI want to keep it open, but they can also close it at any moment. And so we fundamentally, as societies, that's the questions we need to ask. Who are we building this technology? At? And more like, create a different discussion about technology, not around like it's replacing the human, but rather around who it's for and how it's structurally organized. And I also think we need to begin to move towards a, I'm, I'm not a technophobe. I actually think that we're gonna need these technologies to survive, to move ahead. And so our, our conversation needs to move about how do we build equitable AI, just AI, uh, an AI that's environmentally friendly, not um, 
a question about how do we stop AI? It's threatening the human, whatever that is. Um, so we need to change our conversation, I think, to focus more on structure and more on how we create the technologies we want around the societies we want. It's actually not even just one technology. I think it's around what kind of society do we want to build. We are discussing your book, The Smart Mandate. We have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in this book. Obviously, there is much more in the book. However, is there anything else that you think we should touch upon before we close this discussion? Yeah, sure. I want to say that, like, uh, for me, um, smartness is a really dynamic word. It's beyond things like intelligence, because like I said, it, it touches on how we feel bodily, physically, it touches on biology, it touches on aesthetics, how I look, it touches on how I think. And so I've been really interested in, so the book is really an interrogation of how smartness became an important word, not just around language processing that we've talked a lot today about, but also about how we design cities, how we produce the future of human habitats, and most importantly, how we manage the current environmental crisis. And so um, the book is a call to engage with technology, actually. It's not um, a, a kind of critique of technology as much as a call to be critical but also progressive, that we want to find new ways to think about how to use this technology positively for our future. And to that end, we do go to a lot of places and think with a lot of other people about how to use technology, whether it's thinking with indigenous groups like the Navajo Nation uh, about indigenous and en you know so energy sovereignty using smart systems, or whether it's thinking with ecologists like Susan Simmert about smart forests and mycorrhizal um, networks as also smart. You know, we want to be thinking beyond just the limits of, of like how we think about algorithms or, or computing or um, big data to thinking about all the things that new ideas about what it means to rethink the human through this idea of artificial intelligence and smartness might do. And that means a new relationship to nature and even a new idea that of what might be smart. So machines can be smart, but apparently so can forests. Uh, so we kind of want to think with that while we're also super critical. Like we do look at places like Kolkata and like Modi smart cities in India and the way that certain smart city discourses are also just real estate discourses that dispossess people. We also look at um, high-end real estate developments like Hudson Yards and the way that smartness becomes a way for really rich people to build essentially arcs. So they're going to be fine during the next hurricane, but no one else will. And so we're looking about the positives of um, smartness, the way it rethinks who we are, how we can relate to others, both machines and animals and nature. And we're also thinking about the negatives, how artificial intelligence and smartness do accumulate capital and technology in the hands of certain corporations or governments or individuals. 
and how we really need to be thinking about technology in new ways and asking new questions about the structures and the social structures and the historical situations that condition how we build systems. And above all, we really want to engage engineers and designers in a humanistic discussion about the kind of world we want to build. Professor Orit Halpern, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. Thank you so much, Basim, for the invitation and your patience. Yeah, it's wonderful. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you.